0: foodie films is brought to you by the cage club podcast network for all things cage club related head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me Hey there, foodie fans, and welcome back to another episode of Foodie Films. Of course, this is your host, your chef de simo cuisine, Kyle Reinfried. What's going on? How are you? Got another great episode for you. Do I say? Do I? Do I say like every episode's great? I think. I mean, I mean it. I love recording this podcast. I love presenting it to you guys. I love talking with my guests. And today's another great guest. It's Continuing the ripple effect from Pat Lafrida you know, we had Pat and then Paul and now Nick, and so Nick Solaris is our third, first cut. That's kind of weird, third first cut, third first cut episode. And before you know, before we get into it, I just want to say I was recently in Austin, and of course, as far as the food scene, I had an incredible time. I was down there for work. I was filming the red carpet for the uh, I Heart Country Festival. I don't listen to country, so didn't really uh, know any of the names or any of the voices. But Austin, I was—you know—you guys remember I was down there for a bachelor party that I threw in October, and we had a fun time. I mean, it's—it's a—it's a fun time. But I—I want to know from you guys. Let me know what you think of Austin now. I, I went there for the first time four years ago, and every time I've gone, it's been a weekend. But it just seems to be getting... Hey, I'm guilty of it. Like I said, bachelor party. But it's all just bachelor and bachelorette parties down there. And there's lines for every, like, bar. And all the bars are becoming much more clubby. Like, it's a music city. It's one of those top music cities. You know, you got your New York. You got your Chicago. New Orleans. uh, I'll throw L.A. in there. But every place I was passing was just, you know, had DJs and... Playing pop music, you know. Again, I'm I'm not a big country guy, but you know, the, uh, they they should be playing country or rock and roll and having live bands. And there just really wasn't a lot of that. So as far as the nightlife, you know, as far as I'm concerned with the nightlife, it's it's changed a lot. And in, in my opinion, not for the better. But the food. Fifth time in Austin, fifth time I went to Franklin's. I went back to my favorite food truck, Llama's Peruvian food truck, had the pork belly sandwich, and uh, went back to Voodoo Donuts. I should start trying other places. But they're all just very, like, you know, right there. And and since I was there for work, I had little time to explore new places. But I'll definitely go again. I got to go to Houston. Still haven't been to Houston. So I've done Dallas. I've done San Antonio. I've done Austin. El Paso got guess the next, yeah, the next big one to check off is Houston. So Houston, uh, I have the problem. I haven't been there yet. I'm sorry, that was a horrible joke. But anyway, here we go. Nick Solares, the third First Cut episode. Nick, thanks so much for, uh, you rode your bike up here from, your, from Lower East Side to Midtown to Restaurant Row. Something has to
1: keep me moderately pudgy. <laughs> if I didn't ride my bike and work out every day, I'd be grossly obese. <laughs> but such as uh, such as a life of a food writer I guess
0: not only did he put us in contact but are uh, now I mean definitely more of your friend but our uh, mutual friend Paul uh, denimil who I had on the podcast somewhat recently uh, he he you know put us in contact, but we're back in the same room I was recording with him, so.
1: Yeah, one of the great New York characters in the, uh, in the food, well, I mean, interested in the New York world anyway, his family, as you know from that podcast, which you guys should absolutely listen to, it's really riveting, and I'm, I'm friends with Paul, so listening to it was really, <laughs> was, illust- you know, it was great to hear those amazing New York stories, and also from a perspective that he doesn't, you know, would, wouldn't think about to talk to us about, so even, I've known the guy for like 12 years, but. I learned things about him from that podcast. Oh, right? awesome! So it was. It was very, great. But then, I'm, I'm, but just for somebody that has never met him or even ate at his restaurant, um, just a great New York story, you know? like Yeah, which I think food tells the best stories because it's it's a universal. It's something that's so universal to us, right?
0: Yeah. So I mean, for our listeners that uh, don't know who you are, I mean, you're a writer, you're a photographer. Listen, I don't know who I am. You don't know who so you I So I wouldn't blame the listeners for oh, not boy. knowing who I am. But uh, you're a writer, photographer, TV host expert on meat eating and, as you say, a professional carnivore. I would add deviant to that list oh, uh, as my most salient feature, but, yeah, I'll take all <laughs> of those. <laughs> T- tell us about, I mean, what professional carnivore, you know, expert on meat eating, wh- when did this come to be? How did it come to it, be? It, I suppose, it, I suppose the, point of, the tipping point was when somebody paid
1: me to write about meat. Okay. And that was in uh, 2008. For serious eats. But prior to that, I had a food blog for a couple of years um, during the sort of early, early nascent stages of the food blogging world.
0: Yeah, food blogging, st- I mean, early, mid-2000s, right? Is I mean, they
1: were, the first food blogs were probably 2003, 2004. But before that, there was also um, those forums that were sort of bubbling under the surface that sure. weren't overt food blogs. But there was a discourse going on on the internet about food in a way that hadn't occurred before. It was very, before it was very top-down, right? You had restaurant critics. There was the three or four really big critics. They lauded their opinion down. That sort of became the status quo. That's sort of what defined restaurants. And what's happened with the internet is you've had this massive democratization of information. So now anybody can give an opinion. Look, when I started with Serious Seats, it was founded by Ed Levine, who is Ed, to me, was one of the guys that really successfully transitioned from the old analog classic journalism reporting. He wrote for The Times and, and other publications. And then got into digital yeah. and sort of transitioned from that. But, you know, Ed would do something like eat like 30 hot dogs and it would take him like two months. And then that would, you know, then that he would write that piece and that would take another a month. And then that would go to an editor for a week. And then it would eventually come out. And it's like with the internet, like my first my blog I started, I, I reviewed a hamburger a day for a month, right? So you could do thirty reviews in like no time and get them up in like, which at the time was considered real time. Now you consider the way that information is is disseminated, like an Instagram post can be up can be almost in real time.
0: Yeah, right.
1: I mean. So it's so getting back to how I started, I started as a food blogger as a, just a purely as a hobby. I just was passionate about beef. I was eating a lot of steakhouses and decided to sort of quantify the experience in some ways I started sort of taking notes. And then when the Blogger platform became available, which was, I think Blogger came out in 2004, 2005, but that really gave something that you didn't have to learn coding at that point. You didn't have to learn WordPress. You didn't have to learn how to actually code. You could just get in there and write and... The magic of Google took care of everything
0: else. That's all, That's I mean, hey, that's why I I have a podcast. It just became easier over the years, and I, I mean, as far as the technical end, I really don't have the to. do The technical
1: end, and, and also think about the ability to reach an audience.
0: Yeah, right. I the mean, right. there's only six hundred thousand podcasts out there, so I'm sure. You know, yeah, but how many
1: people are out there? That's true. And double that the number of ears that you have to
0: reach. So, thank you, Nick. You're turning my pessimism into something. You know. Well, if nothing else, <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cheerful
1: and optimistic
0: person. <laughs> I'm very sarcastic too. (laughs) Um, When did you When did you move to the states? Where you? So I was
1: actually born in the states. I was born in New
0: York, but moved back over to
1: Europe. I say back to Europe. My parents are Argentinian, but sort of very. um, They moved a lot. Let's just put it that way. I think I I lived in about fifteen or sixteen different houses by the time I was age fifteen or sixteen. Wow! (laughs) It was, and sometimes it was. We would move like. For no reason at all, they would just get a slightly different house, and it would always look the same. There's very sort of beautiful beige-colored walls, and the same sort of, you know, the gray carpet, and the, <laughs> the same pictures, and the same, it was very tastefully done. But it was kind of weird because it was just always configured in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I think, as a sort of reaction to that, I've I've been uh, I haven't moved. I've lived in the same place for about 14 years. Wow. Just in the, on just off uh, 14th, 15th Street in the. Uh, in the sort of Gramercy Park, East Village area. Um, so w- was born here, but moved to, grew up in London. Um, moved back here when I was 15. And had a uh, interesting life, tumultuous New York life. <laughs> had a misspent youth, uh, being a street urchin on Avenue A and hanging out at CBGBs and playing in bands and awesome. dropping out of high school. Um, eventually getting my act together, ran nightclubs, I graduated college eventually Um, and then the first job I got after college was running uh, Coney Island High which was really one of the great nightclubs and one of the last sort of vestiges of what I would consider analog punk rock. In the
0: '90s. Yeah, I mean, hey, uh, you know, I feel like I mean, you're very. I mean, are you the personification of punk rock? I mean, you're. No, wearing, I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't say that. I would say that. Um, you're wearing a class b- T-shirt right now. Yeah, I mean, but the I'm fact writing, that I'm, you know, blogging when it came in, it's very. That was very, like you said, like well, you had dis- the hierarchy I, of the critics and it,
1: then. It was disruptive, and I'm. I yeah. am ultimately about disruption, and that's sort of one of my character flaws but also probably one of the things that makes I think it's me, a strength well it makes me compelling as a as a writer maybe or as a presenter but ultimately I sort of when I really think back on my life and I I'm like I feel I'm a Johnny Rotten type of cynic <laughs> when I really I mean I've always liked I love the clash and the jam and these really positive bands uh-huh. and, but at the end of the day I am ultimately seduced by chaos. I
0: will admit that on a podcast about <laughs> film. I mean, how, I mean, what was it? I mean, what was New York? Uh, that's the you know. That's why I was like talking with Paul about like what was New York like back then, especially. Well, Paul and I are
1: similar age, even though I must say that I have a much better haircut and I'm in much better <laughs> shape than him. Um, we grew up in a very similar New York. Now he grew up here in Hell's Kitchen, which was, I mean, it was a bad neighborhood. Yeah. But I, I would say arguably, I grew up in the Lower East Side. I mean, I mean, I grew up. I. I went from sort of bourgeois, coddled middle-class England to the lower East side. You know, yeah. I look. I, I I got into punk rock when I was like ten years old. I, I got into the Clash because that, in 1978, that's what everyone in my school got into. Sure. Right? I just never left, let that go. Everyone else, the next year, got into two-tone, and then they got into new romanticism. Maybe they became like you know goths after that. But I just always <laughs> loved punk rock and two-tone, uh, this the ska revival, and so I always th- sort of sort that out. So when I moved to New York, my first point, my first port of call was, Lesh- was uh, Leshko's, was CBGB's because that's where the, that's where punk rock started, yeah. frankly. And I still remember going my first CBGB's matinee. And then I mentioned Leshko's just now because that was also my mind. My first meal in New York was at Leshko's, which is a coffee shop on the corner of Avenue A and 7th Street, long gone. But it was one of the classic. It was a Polish diner. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so kielbasa and pierogies yeah. and all that stuff. But all they the, had the, all the great the, meats. The thing that the entire Hawkeville scene lived on, except for the uh, Harry Krishnas, was the ninety-nine cent one egg French fry special came with a side of toast. <laughs> it's just like the whitest thing you could eat, right? But yeah. it was for ninety-nine yeah. cents, a dollar seven with tax. And you know, if you had enough, ch- if you had any money left, you would tip. Um, it was, you know, it was. That was like fine dining. You could like yeah. people would out, go out there and grub change for ten minutes and be able to afford a one X special. So Leshko's was a pretty bad restaurant, but I have fond memories of it. Um, so was oh, just got into punk rock. That you know, it, it was. I'm sure that if my parents look back at it, it was like the demise of my potential as a uh, <laughs> as sort of sort of kind of upright. You know member of society, although I mean in all fairness they're, they've been they 're very supportive of my of my eccentricities and my creativity, so i shouldn't poke fun at them too much, but you've got to get back at them somehow for putting you here um, anyway uh, so just you know that that element what punk rock did to music, I do appreciate in restaurants so as much as i love the classics like peter luger's and smith the walensky and Katz's deli and grand central oyster bar and all these really old school places yeah i'm a huge fan of what david chang did in the and it's you know, parenthetically it's in the same neighborhood where cbgb's was but i look at momofuku in a way that i almost look at cbgb's and i, I i'm an atheist so i don't believe in you know, any kind of spirituality assigned to a place. But I believe there is something about the physical space that, that, that does foster creativity. Now, whether that's sure. that purely yeah. cultural, that's to do with the people that are put together in that space and where they are in their life and all of those things. But there is something particularly about creative energies in places like that. And, you know, I've, it's not that music and food are analogs, but the same kind of disruption... And also the same sort of you think about punk rock. It went from being something that was considered worthless, right? When people first heard the Ramones, they were like, "What the fuck is that?" Yeah. To being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? And I mean, look, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones will never sell as many records as you know a whole plethora of bands that that people. But they're so much more influential. What they did changed the world, right? There's there's restaurants that will never sell, you know. Look. Take Hoth for example, Marco Canora's restaurant on yeah. on uh, East 12th Street. I mean, they create the they didn't create brodo, but they created the brodo trend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I mean, Marco has been doing things, you know, farm to table, grass fed, you know, grain and gluten free stuff like way before it was trendy, right? I yeah. mean, really, and and that you know, he'll he'll never get credit for that, but. He's getting credit for Brodo and hopefully he's making a fortune off it because he deserves it.
0: I was going to ask you, like, who do you think is the most punk rock, like, in the as in the food scene right now? In I mean, Europe?
1: I don't. I hate to use terms like that. Yeah, I guess, you know, but, <laughs> but
0: but that's almost like what it's be, what it's become with the, with that genre. Look, I mean, way. who
1: do I like? I'm not going to say punk rock, but I, who who I think is like revolutionary? Yeah, I think Paul much. Lebron is just a genius. I mean, the, the stuff he does, like. It's, it's challenging. It's obviously, like, it's always delicious. Even stuff that you don't like, like things like, like I fucking hate rhubarb, but like <laughs> Paul makes rhubarb. I'm going to like the rhubarb just because, you know, he's, you know, to me, he's, he's like a, uh, and, and all great chefs, they're like, they're almost like conductors, right? And, and if you think about the, uh, the ingredients as the, the players, the, the musicians, right? Yeah. And it's about creating a symphony of balance. Right, and you want to hear the violins, you want to hear the string, you know, you want to hear the horns, you want to hear the the timpani. It's it's the same with ingredients, right? Um, you know, I think the reason that a lot of cuisines succeed, especially I'm talking, and two of my favorite cuisines are Japanese or elements of Japanese cuisine and Italian cuisines, but they're very much about the sanctity and purity of a few ingredients, right? Yeah, and it's the simplicity of putting those things together, and it's those that ethos works, and it's it's but there's a way that Paul and, and, and the French people and a lot of the, and these molecular gastronomists too. I mean, there's a way that they're cooking that is, you can't just rely on the ingredients, right? It has to be that there has to be a high level. And I'm not saying that the other cuisines are not high level, right? It's just that their strengths lie in those things. And I think that there's something that I particularly admire about the way that chefs produce food on the level of the, the, sort of the high-end chef, friend, chef French. Sure. Chef. I mean, Excuse me, <laughs> French chefs.
0: No, sure, I mean, like, and going back to just comparing it to music, you have your rock and roll bands that, uh, you know, min- minimal, you got a bassist, guitarist, drummer, but then you've got your music out there, you have your orchestras. Right, your like do you like orchestras? Neil
1: Peart or like, you know, <laughs> Charlie, you know, uh, what's his name, Charlie Watts? Like yeah. two of the most iconic drummers, so markedly different, right? I oh, mean, yeah. look at Keith Moon. To me, I like like Keith Moon, is you know, maybe there's a bit of Paul (laughs) of Keith Moon and Paul Lebron, right? That's sort of just like just an an untouchable genius, right? That is sort of unquantifiable in in some way. Um, But you know, there's so many chefs. I mean, I think David Chang to me is I've I've always loved his cooking, but I think that what he's really matured into is just like a guy that can spot talent. Like, and I mean, I guess that's being a restaurateur, but I think there's it's something beyond that. And like, yeah. if you think about Sambar as a sort of the the case in point. It went from Tian Ho three stars, and then I mean, he had Matt Rudolf after that, fantastic chef, and now he's got Max, and, and Max is just—I mean, the kid is young, but God, he, his the stuff he's doing is just phenomenal. It you know, it's interesting. I, I, it's so true that in anything we do, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Because like, just the base knowledge he has about food, just the the techniques that he has, like, I I just, you know, like, the best chefs of the last generation had that, and, like, almost all of the chefs of the current generation, if they've been properly trained, and I don't mean going to culinary school necessarily, although I think that's still a really important thing.
0: Sure, yeah. I think that classical
1: foundation, it just... Yeah, it's and it's not just that they teach you how to cook in culinary school. You, you learn about food costs. You learn about hospitality. There's a whole there's a whole slew of things that you learn about doing restaurants, yeah, not cook, just cooking, right? Cooking and that is a team sport. Yeah. Um, so, and then of course being in the right kitchens, that obviously you know helps, and, and having a career that I hate the word curated because we always get shit for using that when we're writing on the <laughs> internet, but. In a sense, you know, you you kind of want. It's like, what gigs do you play in a band, or you know? Yeah. Maybe we should talk more about film um, than uh, music because this is a food I mean, food. they're all connected. I mean, the <laughs> no, three, they are. The three, the
0: three loves of my life are food, music, and film. I would always have a really bad line when I would start talking to women. I would be like, Ah, film is my wife, music is my mistress, <laughs> just because I I. While I love music, I was just not to the level of. Working in the music field. And then right. the film, I worked in production, and that just was more, you know, made made more sense to me, or I, you know, had a bit of a talent for it. And then food has just been, you know, from early days of family and then just working on, you know, working at a deli to working on even some food TV shows. That's where food, you know, the love of that has become stronger for me. Where, where did, I mean, when did food, what, uh, what, did anyone in your family work in food at all? No, or? my
1: my sister has subsequently, so, I mean, I left home when I was 15. Okay. So I didn't really grow up with, <laughs> I mean, I, I spent the first 15 years with my family, but the, I spent the rest and I'm 50 now. So whatever the math on that is, I can't even do it. It's too <laughs> daunting. But um, my, my look, I love my mother's cooking. and I think she, she cooked, the things she cooked, she cooked really well, but it was fairly rote. It wasn't, she wasn't, cooking out of cookbooks we would have like the meatloaf we'd have the shepherd's pie we'd have you know roast chickens she'd do a silver side roast beef you know i mean i remember the dishes distinctly but there was no variance in them we i mean we had a we had a you know we had a wide penelope we had a wide menu to to eat but it was never food was never really big um my father enjoys going out to eat and there was occasions when we would like travel to italy where we lived briefly where we'd visit like we'd get the mission guide and he would Drive to a Michelin-star restaurant.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. That's, so there was—that's a was, really cool experience. And
1: you know, we and just living in Italy. I mean, the the food you're exposed to, and then going back to England, like you fundamentally know that there is a a, a difference in the way that food is treated, and you know that pizza over there versus the the McCann frozen pizza that they serve with with chips <laughs> is not the same thing. So you you gain you know obviously traveling you gain sensibilities unless you're like a lot of English people, which is <laughs> they go to bay and they order. An English breakfast, right <laughs> but that side, um you know we were adventurous eaters at least at least some of us in the family um but it really was to me food the first it became about self determination in the same way that when I could afford to dress myself and choose what I wore and yeah. what i spent my my money on like rec in terms of records and those things, food was always about self determination, so you know, as soon as I could i would i mean to me McDonald's was an early like not a, I wouldn't say addiction but that was like an early obsession in terms of restaurants right because yeah. what, I mean especially to a kid growing up in the 70s in England we used to drive from like the from the Barnes Richmond area to like halfway across London to like like Kensington <laughs> to the first McDonald's right oh wow
0: and it was like, a, it was like going out to eat, you know, yeah. and it
1: was like, I, rem- I still remember graduating from the cheeseburger to the Big Mac, right? It was probably when I was like, I don't know, maybe eight or nine. Yeah. But it was always like, no, that's too big. And then one day I was like old enough and they're like, all right, you can, you can get the bigger hamburger. And it was like, you know,
0: that was like a a milestone,
1: at least at the time.
0: L- let me ask you, do you think that McDonald's in foreign countries are better than like here in the States? I've This that's-
1: is a, this is a foreign country. I'm joking. Sorry, yeah. It's not America. I'm joking. <laughs> um, I'm in New York. It's not America. Yeah. Um, I've only eaten McDonald's in Britain, and not in probably about thirty years. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, um, so. <laughs> and I have. I haven't eaten. Mc- I ate McDonald's the other week because they came out with that new fresh beef quarter pounder with cheese. Oh
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, which is actually it's a pretty good hamburger. Um, I, I, just, I don't know why they don't do that with all of their meat, but that's always been
0: one of my big, you know,
1: quibbles with McDonald's is they're using frozen beef.
0: Yeah, well, that and, I mean, just the patties themselves over the years have seemingly getting smaller and smaller, and it just looks kind of pitiful when you get them, but...
1: Well, it's, it's I mean, it, the other thing to remember, of course, we, we live in the era of Shea Shack and our expectations of the yes. modern hamburger in terms of lushness of, of fat content. I mean, Shea Shack's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty rich hamburgers.
0: Yeah, I mean these 25% Shake Shack, Five Guys, in and out I mean, you have these, I don't know, I mean they are fast food, but they're like the upper echelon of it. Do you do you have a favorite when it comes to this?
1: fast food wise?
0: Um of yeah, of, of like the na- the new age like The, the, the new Shake age one's Shake Shack because yeah. they,
1: they sort of define it. to me, they, you know, and they've they've pioneered so many trends. I mean, you think about the potato bun like Martin's should be should really be so thankful. I mean, not that Martin's <laughs> is a great product and it's got a long history, but like my recollections of Martin's was never on hamburgers, you know? Like Shake Shack totally made that sort of a kind of a, a version of the New York style hamburger, right? So mm-hmm. like a four or five ounce patty American cheese yeah. on a Martin's potato bun. That to me is probably the most common burger recipe or whatever you call it. Um, that you'll find out, you know, that you find in New York these days. And, you know, Shake Shack is, is that. But in, in terms of other fast food places, I really love, um, Steak and Shake. I love In-N-Out Burger. I like Whataburger. I, I, I love regional places. So yeah. if I'm in the Midwest, you know, I'm going to love to go to a Steak and Shake or a, or a, um, Culver's. So
0: after, after blogging, you, uh, so
1: blog, so blogging led to a Serious Eats, which yeah. was my first professional writing job. I was a hamburger reviewer. Um, Then I became the pizza reviewer, so I was doing hamburger and pizza reviews. Then I became the restaurant reviewer while Ed was doing, I think Ed was working on the Serious Eats book, Um, so I ended up taking over his thing and doing the reviews, which was great because I had a pretty good dining budget by that time. Um, During that course, I I was technically freelance, although pretty much the bulk of my work was for Serious Eats from about 2008 till about 2014. I wrote for like AM New York, which is a local paper. And I worked, you know, there's some stuff for print, like Time Out and a few other things. And those uh, glossy airline magazines. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, they pay you very well to do like 50 words on, the <laughs> on a hamburger. So it was like, you know, at that time I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, but now I really, you know, then I ended up going to, ETA got acquired by Vox Media. And Eater was this a blog that I had followed since probably 2005 when they launched. It was really, a, it was a restaurant blog. It wasn't a food blog. It was about restaurants and the restaurant scene. And it really is, it's chewed food porn. Like you would very, very rarely see food porn on Eater up until Vox Media took it over. And then when Vox Media took it over, it really became a, a full-on journalistic endeavor. They hired professional critics. They hired um, Robert Sistema, Ryan Sutton, um, uh, Bill Addison, myself, to come on as sort of professional food writers. And I became restaurant editor, um, doing a lot of feature writing. Uh, I don't do review. I I wasn't doing reviews for them. I was doing some burger stuff, but really I was doing cultural stuff and trend stuff sure the, is there the more a, overarching themes
0: is there a difference between just someone that's blogging and then like a critic like i mean a critic i mean you're giving well i think
1: there or... i think if you're talking about a restaurant critic yes. that is a defined job and i think that yes there, I, I a a blogger is not a critic because i think that a critic has an editor and a critic has a has a budget Right, sure. Got to pay. You have to pay your way, and you know it's funny. You 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 think you know spending your own money would be the ultimate thing, but actually, what I found as a writer and as a, when I was doing food criticism is that when you're spending someone else's money, you're actually more mindful of it, or at least I think maybe conscientious people should be more mindful <laughs> of other people's money, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's almost you know, and really, restaurant criticism, especially in the American model, is by and large a consumer report. Of course, there's the the contextualization of the cultural aspect of restaurant dining but it's a consumer report should you spend your money here yes why should you spend your money here that's also what a restaurant critic does but they are telling you is it ultimately worth your dosh right yeah. your hard-earned <laughs> money um, so I think that there it, you know when you look at what like the professional critics in New York like obviously Pete Wells Adam Platt Ryan Sutton Robert Sistema, right they have budgets. They're anonymous, right? I mean, to one to to, to they, the best they, degree um, as possible. Yes. Okay. So he, he, someone will Here's a story. Them, yeah. You know, uh, you know the restaurant Indochine. Yes. Indochine actually is mentioned in the film that we're going to talk about in a minute, yeah, American oh. Psycho, because Indochine yeah. was a, was a staple in the '80s um, of downtown New York cultural life. Right. It was one of those. In the way that nightclubs and I worked at an, one of the, one of those nightclubs called Save the Robots, it was sort of an intersection of all of the downtown art and music and, and fashion scenes. Indochine was sort of that, although it was pretty big, and especially in fashion. Indochine is a for those who don't know is a is a Vietnamese restaurant um, down to, on uh, Lafayette. It's still there. It's been there probably yeah. 30 years at this point. Um, at the time in Indochine, there was life-size photographs of. Bill Grimes, Ruth Reichel, the the, the critics at the time. There was oh, wow. like four of them. Life yeah. size. Everyone who worked at Indochine had to stand in front of that thing until they memorized that person. And they were <laughs> life That's, size yeah. so that when you're confronted with Ruth Reichel or Bill yeah. Grimes, you know exactly who they are. So that there was four people there, right? If you walk into the right if you don't walk into restaurants neck restaurant kitchens now, and I've probably been in because I do a lot of behind the scenes videoing and and photography and restaurants. I I spend a lot of time in kitchens and what I see a lot in kitchens, especially the the guys that are from, you know, big restaurants that are playing the, the, what I call the A game, right? They're expecting to get reviewed by the times and by, by New York magazine and by Eater. There's pictures of people on the walls and I'm often on the pictures. I'm often in those pictures, right? But like, it's people you can imagine, like everyone, all the critics, you know, now some of them are way off. Like, the funniest one I've ever seen is a picture of Robert Sistema, the the venerable critic from the Village Voice and now Eater. Who, it, you know, he's one of the treasures. Like he he's New York's Jonathan Gold, right? That's yeah. the guy that's been beating the you know beating the the path out to like in the middle of nowhere in Queens and the Bronx and <laughs> yeah. discovering these these really incredible and, neighborhood yeah. and sort of undiscovered you know gems. Because where we, he was anonymous. He would use this picture of him wearing this like crazy, like Mexican, like death mask or something, right? <laughs> there was a picture of Robert Sistema wearing that mask Where? on the wall in a restaurant. Who I will, will remain nameless because the restaurant's actually closed. It's not too far from here. Obviously. Okay, but that was one of the funniest <laughs> things I saw, and I was just like, "You should actually wear that mask in. You'd probably get really good treatment." Yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> that
1: um, so. Anyway, that you know, that's the the. the uh, the reality of, of of the way the game is played now. And that, that just shows, you know, you could find 20, 30 people in that book now, whether there used to be four. So that illustrates how food media has just absolutely blossomed. Look, there's also been this ascendancy of food on the cultural plane, right? 20 years ago, chefs weren't considered celebrities. You know, no. maybe one or two. But really, it was sort of, they were, it was very... You know, there was the Wolfgang Pox of the world, obviously, and, you know, the Julia Charles and the people that sort of taught America how to cook or how to eat, Yeah. but they weren't, they weren't really, they weren't revered on a cultural sense, right?
0: Well, I think that's definitely come into play with Instagram and all these, I mean, you look at Netflix with all of its, I mean... David Chang has a series on that. I mean, you know. That's a fantastic show. It's amazing. I love it. I ever I, I watch. Uh, I don't
1: watch any food TV to be honest with you. No.
0: No. Because it's because it's already such a
1: big part of your well, life. Well, there's two re- yeah, there's two reasons. One is I don't cuz I do video content. I really don't want to be influenced in any way. I oh, don't want yeah, to be predisposed. But also because it's not I mean Yeah, it, it it's mostly that, but also it's just because if I'm going to watch something it's going to be something that like Escapism. Well, it's my job, and I want. It's not. Yeah, yeah, I guess escapism is probably right. I want you
0: know. Pat Pat Lafrieda said the same thing when we were talking movies. He's like, yeah, I don't watch any like food films. He's like, that's the last thing I want to see. He's like, I watch comedies from the '80s and all that stuff. You know, right? Just what would be pure enjoyment and something maybe he he can you know then fall fall asleep from or whatever. But what do you think of? The trends of Instagram or even something like Yelp where you have your everyday people that aren't don't have as much knowledge but obviously are you know like I mean this is podcast is called foodie films there's a lot of self-proclaimed foodies out there now that have an opinion but where do you think that works you know Yelp well someone could give a bad review but, and then that hurts somebody you yeah,
1: know? yeah well I mean look everyone's an expert on one thing and that's their own opinion and what they like and what their taste is right so I mean look with anything a a reviewer you build a relationship with any author that you read whether it's a a novelist whether it's a you know a straight up news reporter whether it's a whether it's an opinion columnist whether it's a restaurant or a theater or a movie or a film critic right so and why you know the reason that Yelp works is because it's you can follow people in that way right so and it, look, it's a, I, I think there's some questionable, and I'm not an expert on the way Yelp works, and I've always ignored Yelp because lowest common denominator and popular opinion are not something that I gravitate towards. And I don't think that those are things that criticism should gravitate towards, at least in the sort of high-end realm. And I don't mean that necessarily in terms of luxury and expense. I just mean in, in terms of refinement and attention to detail, right? Um, but certainly when you' when you have a relationship with a critic you're trusting in their values now, take ryan Sutton ryan 's a friend of mine I know ryan I, I, I love Ryan dearly and I think he's like I think he's among the most ethical people I know right i don't agree with his opinions a lot of the times and we't don't, we don't share the same value but we're also generationally apart and at the same time I when he writes something, I generally believe that he's being honest and earnest about it. And I, you know, and I do factor in. And listen, the guy has an incredible range of experience. He's been dining, you know, at at all. And I've eaten at many meals with him. And look, the guy, you know, look, there's, people hate critics. Every critic has their critic, right? Yeah, sure. But, you know, to (laughs) me, I think, you know, we're pretty lucky in New York. I mean, I think the three, the the big three that we have which is i mean really it's obviously when it really comes down to it pete wells is the most influential and important um but you know again you see the times will will always be will always have that power but it has definitely over the course of time i wouldn't say it's waned but it's it's definitely been diluted on some level right although that is always you know that's It's always the most meaningful when a chef gets a great review. Oh yeah, in in the times. I mean, that's still.
0: That's a that's that's still huge deal. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: But at the same time, there there is so much bandwidth now. There's so much room for success. Yeah. And at the same time, there's obviously there's increasingly there is there's room for danger and pitfalls. I mean, this just this year alone, we're going to see a lot of restaurant closings with the with the minimum wage going up. Yeah. With the cost of business generally, you know, going up.
0: One of the last, uh, as far as this food stuff goes, uh, you you are a photographer. What do you think of Instagram in that sense? I mean, oh, it's people... fan-
1: listen, it's it's all fantastic. I mean, I love everything that allows you to express yourself, and I hate to use the term brand, whatever, but I am on, on some level reinforcing an aesthetic, if not a brand. Yeah, and that thing, uh, you know, embodies. A, a joy for life a, a joy of eating uh some wanton reckless abandon uh, and at the same time sort of you know the bike riding and you know i i try to bo- I, I box to work out and you know i feel that it's almost like like my responsibility to show people look i do eat vegetables and I, <laughs> right because you know you know there is that whole you know the whole meathead you know, yeah. lardcore movement thing, which I love it because it's a you know it does annoy people, and I like to annoy people. Let's be honest. And I love beef, and I love meat, and I you know I love that sort of wanton gluttony, but I also want to be
0: here in another ten and sure. twenty years, and you know, I just there, 50, so I, yeah. I have to have some balance. So Is there any to- any day that you're just like you're just, you're sick of meat? Well,
1: I do uh, I do what's called uh, have you heard of intermittent fasting? No, I haven't. Intermittent fasting is is. I do something called the five-two diet, where I, two days a week I fast, so I don't eat anything for thirty-six hours. Wow! Um, or you eat, you know, a tiny amount. Sure. Um, it's very. I've lost like fifty pounds doing it. It's uh, it's good. It gives you discipline. And look, in my in my line of work, I know there's a fantastic meal. Like
0: there's yeah, only a th- be, yeah. I'm only
1: I'm only ever thirty-six hours away from an ethereal food experience. Yeah. So
0: you got so it's fine. tunnel vision it's good. towards that. Good. but it also it,
1: look it, It's good i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bore you with the reasons fasting is healthy and good, but it does help it, like anything else I think you know it just just to clear and just to stop and not do something like you get an appreciation for it when you redo it when you start doing it again yeah. um anyway so just to wrap up you know how I got to this table. From E so at my time with ETA, I somehow I, I don't know how this happened, but I'm eternally thankful to them over there. They pushed me to do video and the first thing I did was they put me in front of a teleprompter and I was dreadful. And then I don't know what happened, but I just like ad libbed something and it kind of clicked. And we did a couple of videos and they, it kind of worked. And they gave me something called The Meat Show, which ended up getting a couple of Emmy nominations. Wow. Um, there's yeah. a hundred, I think we did a hundred episodes. That's yeah, I've,
0: I've watched a few episodes and they're great. I, I, I'm sorry to hear that. No, you uh, recovered. <laughs> no, you guys should really check it out. I mean, they're all, a lot of them are on YouTube and. Uh,
1: Watch them; it'll um, it, it'll give you. Um, it, that's re- I guess the, the the that sort of is what I'm doing now. Yeah. Right? That gives you the, the the easiest lead into what I'm doing now, which is I have a new show, which is my own show called Meat Life, and that's debuting. It might even be out by the time this podcast airs.
0: But, oh, awesome! Yeah, because probably the not. Because video, been, it's like the sizzle that was showing. Just, yeah, yeah. So
1: that we're a bit delayed because for various reasons. But it's it, it is imminent. We've shot the first season in New York and featuring a bunch of my favorite places. So. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. Um, so that's where I'm at now. And, you know, that's really what I do. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned the photo. I'm a photographer. Yeah. Um, and I guess I have a video production company now, which produces my show, and we do content for other people too. Awesome. So I'm sort of in the film, not the film world, but my partner who, parenthetically, what I met 12 years ago, he was my West Coast hamburger reviewing counterpart. Okay. So his name's David Gambudo. Look him up. He he wrote some fantastic reviews, and we both really sort of wrote very similarly. We we try to try to write as little about the hamburger itself, and try to contextualize something with historical relevance, uh, relevance or cultural relevance, um, with you know sort of within the parameters of a hamburger review. So he. At the, even back then, he was he was big in film and television production. Um, he's now moved to back to New York, and we have a production company called Meat Life Media, which produces my show. But we also do content for restaurants, trade associations. Awesome! Um, yeah, that's, you know,
0: you're talking my language. That's producers. the stuff I'm really interested in. Yeah, that's that whole the food. Yeah, so around. we do. Yeah. I mean,
1: basically, we're we're deli- It's called Meat Life Media. We're we're not doing tofu retreats. <laughs> <laughs> sprout cooking, uh, sprout cooking videos. It's pretty much just about the modern carnivore lifestyle, which is what my brand is, for lack of a better word. That's my 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 ethos and my aesthetic is modern carnivore.
0: I, I like it, and you gave the perfect transition of, and you like, I mean, you you hinted at it as far as uh, a couple of scenes we're gonna talk about. Which which one would you like to discuss? Well, let's
1: some? start apocalypse now because uh, that is the the older and I, yeah no we'll I, gave you, I gave you i gave you i gave you a few give a few a, i gave you a few um movies and you picked apocalypse now and no. american psycho out Correct. of the ones that i gave you yeah I,
0: I like the you know in the shit versus the 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 posh yeah uh, but they're both
1: know. both films if you think about what they represent they they are both about they're both about a Darkness and well but also a decline a moral decline in American life Definitely, and it's funny yeah. that one wraps up the 70s and the other one wraps up the 80s so yeah, it's funny that we yeah. picked movies and what so uh, Apocalypse came out in 79
0: 78 or 79 right yeah. and
1: then I guess uh, um, American Psycho is 2001, 2001 or 2000? 2000 2000 yeah. um, but they're both you know they, they're both films that got to look at, a, at the decades prior to them with some sort of hindsight and some 2020 vision um, and they're two actually two of my favorite films. And there just happens to be food scenes in them, which are the most interesting type of food scenes because they're not because the film isn't about food. Yeah. Right. So yeah. in the same way that food can sort of be a conduit to tell stories that aren't about food, this film, even though it's not about food, tells a story about food. And the, the food that we're going to talk about in both cases really kind of reflects something about it reflects something about the way that we eat but it also reflects about our relationship to food on a societal level and and on a sort of on a social stratification level so apocalypse now there's two scenes that really stand out to me (laughs) yeah the first one is right at the beginning when uh willard is getting his assignment to assassinate kurtz right yeah um He's in the room
0: with, I mean, Harrison you know, young Harrison Ford, just post uh, the original Star Wars, I guess.
1: That's right. Um, And I'm just pulling up the quote. So, Corman is the guy that's talking to Will. He's the guy that's assigning him the assassination. And he's passing around a plate of food. And on this plate is roast beef. Yeah. And you can see it. It's rosy, rosy rosy-colored roast beef. The outside has got a beautiful Maillard reaction, brown. You can see maybe this is a slight hint of a... of grill marks on it. And then there's head-on shrimp. So this is what this is what Corman says to Willard. Let's see what we have here as he as he passes the plate. He goes... It
0: roast it? beef, and usually it's not bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Try some, Jerry. Pass it around. Save a little time, and we'll pass it both ways. Captain, I don't know how you feel about this shrimp, but, but you'll eat it. You'll never have to prove your courage in any other way. I'll take a piece here. So the shrimp is head-on shrimp, yeah. right? Which... We eat all the time now in New York and in fancy bourgeois restaurants, but if you think about, and I don't really remember where Willard is meant to come from, but he strikes me as sort of a Midwestern boy for yeah. some reason. Um he does, he passes on the shrimp. He doesn't eat it.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that it's you got the roast beef. Something. I mean, we'll just call it. You know, very American in that right. scene, and then you have the shrimp or you know, like prawn. Which
1: is not. Which is again very common in America, but we don't eat with shrimp. So by the by having the head intact, it makes it very Asian. Yes. Right. And it, or if not, I mean, in this case, it is Asian, but the 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 broader context is that it's foreign and alien. Yes. Right. And especially that notion of it being alien because there's few creatures on earth that look more like an alien than a shrimp.
0: <laughs> yeah. A see. of seafood between shrimp, octopus. And right. Yeah, so,
1: so there's that. And, and the way that he passes on it is very, it's very Presbyterian.
0: It's, yeah. Just, well, you know, it's, it's being in a foreign land, being uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, 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 and resorting to roast beef, which is again, getting back to the, and I don't know why I'm assigning that he's necessarily Protestant, but I feel that he is. <laughs> um, what do you call the English? The Anglos, roast beefs, right? So there, there is that. It's, it's very John Bull. It's very Anglo, very colonial also, though. So, so yeah, th- uh, that scene, I love that. And I, I think that that sort of speaks so much to, you know, what's to come and you can imagine kurt sitting in that position he he would probably eat the shrimp head on yeah just you know i think I mean? he'd like, just toss the whole thing into it yeah. <laughs> so it's, so i so i i think about that dichotomy the other scene that i absolutely love in that film is the scene when it's not that far after that when they're actually out on the on the pt boat for the first time
0: yeah yeah we have and, our whole crew assembled right and
1: Willard's with chef and they're getting mangoes right and it's when they it's the tiger scene fucking mangoes man you know so they go out they go off they're in they're out looking for mangoes which they must be amazing the vietnamese mangoes must be amazing right or maybe they're even in cambodia at that point um but so they're getting mangoes and out of nowhere comes but during that time they're talking about food and Willard asks him i'm going to do it again i I can't do these accents very well because i don't remember so i'm just going to do it in the best american that i can and I think Willard's from New Orleans, so I'll try, I'm not going yeah, to butcher that accent, but please forgive me America. Willard, uh, how come they call you How come they call you that? Asking why they call him chef? Call me what, sir? Chef? Is that because you like mangoes and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. I'm a real chef, sir. A saucier. A saucier. Yes, sir. See, I come from New Orleans. I was raised to be a saucier, a great saucier. We specialize in sauces. Has to be a mango tree here somewhere. I was supposed to go to Paris. Then my physical came up. Hell, I joined the Navy. Someone told me Navy had better food. Cook school. That did it. Oh, yeah, (laughs) how? They lined us up in front of a 100 yards of prime rib. Magnificent meat. Beautifully marbled. Then they started throwing it into these big cauldrons, all of it, boiling. I looked in, and it was turning gray. I couldn't fucking believe that one.
0: <laughs>
1: so, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that scene, I mean, I, I'm sorry I butchered that. I should have just read it in my terrible voice. Um, I mean, I love the, the idea of, because prime rib
0: happens to be my favorite dish.
1: Oh, wow, okay. It's the, the greatest thing I've ever eaten is a Smith and Walensky prime rib.
0: I was going to ask you, like, what's your
1: favorite cut of beef? Well, I saved you the time. Yeah. Listen, I'm so fucking boring. I get to it every conversation (laughs) I have. Um, That's my favorite thing that I've done videos. My first episode of Meat Life is on that cut of beef. So I'm not going to even belabor the point. Just watch the new show when it comes out. Um, That's my favorite thing. So roast beef is always near and dear to my heart. And I think there's few dishes that are more poorly treated than prime rib. Now, a lot of that is because. things like this yes right or weddings where it's exactly that that. medium rare i mean medium well and it's like you know like sawdust um or the you know the sort of the, the the diner special or whatever it's always tough and gnarly and just a disappointment but prime rib in its most pure form and done well is to me the most glorious thing you can do with that with a piece of meat so Looking at that, like, I totally get that. Like, and this is a guy that's, you know. I also love the fact that this, he was going to be a chef, right? He was going to be, he was going to go to Paris. Yeah. That guy could have worked in a Michelin fucking restaurant, right? And what happened to him? Got drafted. Yeah. And would that have happened to a rich guy? No. Of course not, right? The rich guy's got to go to. But this is a guy that obviously had talent. Yeah. Right, because you wouldn't be going to Paris if you didn't.
0: A talent, a passion. Right. And, yeah. And
1: so. and obviously he love food because to have a reaction to that, to boiling meat, like that's something that's visceral. Right? Yeah. And like he's he's not just seeing a wasted dish, he's seeing a wasted life, right? He's seeing that those animals would were butchered for the worst possible reason rather for rather for the only good
0: reason. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's just it's a it's a great scene that we're getting, you know, I mean, this ha- a lot of films, especially, I mean, this isn't a, ho- a horror film, but horror- horrific things happen in it. But let's say like in the movie Alien, little by little, you're getting to know the crew. And so this is just a great anchor point for the character that you get to eventually, you know, when then when we lose him, it just means that much more.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, that's that's a character arc, too. But it's, you know, and especially in this guy's case, you see the same when he when he right after that scene they get on the boat they get attacked by the tiger and they do have some mangoes in the bucket and he fucking th- he throws the bucket right and he's like fucking mangoes man like the futility of the whole thing right and it's like th- that is just the, f- the futility of everything he's doing there is sort of embodied in that anger right as he throws that bucket and he loves food right even that, even his love for food, the revulsion of having those those prime ribs ruined—like, it's almost like he's been robbed of his humanity because he's throwing fucking mangoes now. You know, yes. it's like he's <laughs> driven. To, he's been driven to this. Yeah, you know. That, so it's, like, it's and almost being yeah, by just, a tiger because of them, right? You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's just. And you know, the film, more broadly speaking, about. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to Apocalypse Now than just Vietnam. But as a metaphor for, for that generation and that darkness, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty
0: apt. Yeah, that loss of innocence that, I mean, that was, I mean, we were talking a lot about just media in general earlier. And that was, I mean, Vietnam War being covered on the news the way it was. Yeah, and it, it, it was different?
1: also the fracture of, of uh, American optimism. It was, it was really that, coupled with the OPEC crisis, really the de- decline of American empir- empirical power. So obviously that was in terms of global... Hegemony on a military and a socio-political sense, but if you look at um, American Psycho, what it what that's addressing really is the rise of of sort of of the capitalism that sort of ensued after that, and 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 it, it's ultimately about um, you know trickle down economics and yeah, what would you know what was considered maybe
0: voodoo economics. At a, <laughs> um, that just makes me think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off when he's like <laughs> voodoo economics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like you know American Psycho really getting to our next film yeah um addresses the the hubris of you know in in kind of the same way that Wall Street does i think um obviously it takes it a very different approach um but it is a satire on
0: you know Manhattan wealth, ultimately. Yeah, and I mean the the classism of that, and then right. Just, I mean
1: the the classism, the nouveau richness of it, the um, you know, ultimately the the uh, you know, the vacuous nature of it all, and and just how it's it's ultimately a soulless existence. Yeah. Whether you believe or well, I mean, I don't. You know, soul is a it's a tenuous term. But w- w- when I use the term soul, I mean some sort of humanity, right? Like.
0: Yeah, and it, well, and it shows in the most perfect metaphorical way of this guy that goes on as a, I mean, murders people. with... A, I mean, literally an axe murderer.
1: Well, uh, yeah, but not,
0: but actually not literally. I think figuratively. now. Because oh, I don't think any yeah. of that's real, right? Yes, it's exactly. All, yeah. all, in the end, the big yeah, yeah. It's all in his head. So yeah. Yeah.
1: It's it's, but. The, I mean, without getting into the film too much because because we're talking about food. And that <laughs> ultimately is, to me, it's like that opening scene is <laughs> it's so great. Um, it's, it's everything that's sort of wrong with food.
0: Sure, yeah. Right? T- like, yeah, t- everything
1: that's wrong with restaurants. At the same time, it's so alluring. And like half of that stuff, I'm like, yeah, I'm curious about that. And the other half, I'm like, that just sounds fucking dreadful. Um. <laughs> Let me read the opening lines, of, please. Yeah, and then this is a waiter. Do you remember? Do you remember the scene? It's beautifully yeah, so shot. Yes. Right? Well, so
0: it opens up, and it's a title sequence, and we're getting these macro shots over the tables. Very well. The opening scene is actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Turns it actually, out to be, Christian Bale, w- which
1: turns out to be Raspberry Cooley, right? Yes. Getting, getting getting laid down on um on a very stark white board. Yes. Lit from behind, but it almost looks like blood, right? But it's not quite. And who knows what it is? But I think it's Raspberry Cooley, and that right. And then they, they cut to the scene with the way—I haven't actually seen this. This is all from memory, by the way, even though I prepared for this, but <laughs> I haven't actually watched it. Um, but the opening line is, and the, the way is halfway through, giving the daily specials, yes. with goat cheese profiteroles, and I also have an arugula Caesar salad. For entree tonight, I have a swordfish meatloaf with onion marmalade, a rare roasted partridge breast in raspberry coulis with a sorrel timbal. Then this is a description from the thing. Huge white porcelain plates descend on a very pale pink linen tablecloth. Each of the entrees is a rectangle about four inches square and they look exactly alike. (laughs) Close up on various diners as we hear fragmentation, fragments of conversation. Is that Charlie Sheen over there? Excuse me, I ordered the octopus. I'm sorry. Excuse me, I ordered the cactus pear sorbet. (laughs) And then it goes back to the waiter. And grilled free-range rabbit with a herbed french fries. Our pasta tonight is a squid ravioli in a lemongrass broth, <laughs> and then of course it it goes through all that, and they're all, and then it's the four guys. Is it four or five yeah. guys?
0: Like, they're either yeah. That's I think it's like Josh Lucas and right. uh, oh god. I mean, obviously Christian Bale. And I'm totally blanking on his name right now. So
1: Alba the characters, yeah. right? They, and then one of them goes
0: to the bathroom and comes back, and they go, this is a chick restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, uh, I, I, even, I even had it pulled up before. What was the... They wanted to go... Well, Dorcia, Dorcia is yeah.
1: the... Which, of course, doesn't exist. Dorcia is a fictitious restaurant. Yeah. In the same way that his, his house is fictitious. I live on the American Guns building on West 81st Street. There's no such thing. <laughs> right? So yeah. it, there's a lot of... It's a very interesting, it's like a hall of mirrors almost, uh, American Psycho, in terms of the, the New York that it paints, because there's very real places, Grand Central Oyster Bar, Smith & Walensky, right? All these places. Sure. Also, right, which is right down the street yeah, from here, right? right that's yeah. mentioned in it. Um, and then there's places that were open, like a Espace, which is now closed, that were open for a very short period of time, but definitely spoke to that era and then there's places that are complete made up, like yeah, Dorso, like which is the to them it is what would be considered today the grill or the Frenchette or the tack room, right? The the hottest table to get yeah. at a particular moment in time. I love when
0: he calls and the guy just starts the, the just, just starts laughing and yeah.
1: he puts it down in in rapt humiliation. The um, so uh, the obsession with having a table at a restaurant and there's that one line when the, the guy goes to him. Um, I'm not going anywhere without a reservation. Yeah. Right. I could have got us into Dorcio. You know, that there is this one upmanship. Um, getting back to Pat LaFrieda, Pat LaFrieda had a great quote years ago when I was interviewing him. He said, you know, in Manhattan, we don't have country clubs and restaurants kind of fulfill that role in many cases. And I think American Psycho is the most stark example of that in terms oh, yeah. of, sort of of New York, you know, films or or cultural objects about New York that that one it really is treated as a country club and it's all about who you're seen with what you're doing what's that one restaurant crayons where they fucking draw with crayons and I don't know if that place actually existed but it sounds like
0: it should have existed <laughs> Yeah exactly it's it well like you said like it's just it's showing it's after uh what I mean almost a decade after no yeah a decade after the 80s ended and it's just showing this over Over-exemplified, silly version of it but at the same yeah. time you could find that you, you could
1: know. and but what's interesting i think what's particularly interesting about american psycho is that it uh, it's the first time that restaurants became something for the nouveau riche to sort of pursue and the, they had their own distinct restaurants
0: yeah and place, the-
1: like place like Espace, or if you if you live in the real world a place like china grill in the 80s which i don't think you know which is which is now closed, and is now, is now um, Nusret, the uh, Salt Bays restaurant. Oh, okay. Which which couldn't be uh, which is the starkest example of a, of an Instagram meme. Yes. Gone <laughs> analog, I guess. Um, but um, that was China Grill for for a long time, right? And that's a restaurant that you know I don't think gets enough credit for actually being kind of revolutionary in its day even though you know it was you look at the stuff now it looks very passe but of course this was the 80s right yeah so places like jams and you know china grill and all these sort of iconic places in the 80s a lot of those restaurants were and i'm not saying those i'm not singling them out but um you know they they were they became places that became status symbols in a way that restaurants hadn't been before. Right? Yeah. It became the way of what yeah.
0: cars and clothing were. Exactly, And, and also the beginning, I, I mean, of when people would become more familiar with the chef's names and. Yeah. You know. And it very, exactly. And getting back to the American cycle with that,
1: whole, the, um, that obsession with ingredients. And you, obviously you see a lot of the description in there with, uh, you, you're seeing a lot of Asian influence, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of fusion food going on. Um, I know. I think that was the entryway for a lot of people, especially the yuppies of the '80s, into actual authentic expressions of cuisine. The constant obsession with getting a reservation, being in the right place. The 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 classic scene is when he's got his girlfriend and she's nodding out on whatever. She probably at that it was Quaaludes. It was the '80s. Yeah. And. He's at some completely rest, completely different restaurant, but he tells her she's a Torsier. She doesn't even know the difference.
0: This is Torsier? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, those are, I mean, two, like you said, just two great movies and just great examples of food in film that aren't food-driven film, but just how, I mean, food is just a big part of everyday people's lives well i
1: think all look the, the, all of these streams of, of cultural pursuit film poetry art interpretive dance painting right sure all those things yeah. i food is it's not the same as those things because it's not it can never
0: well it needs to be a part of everyone's I, lives. i already. just don't
1: think and I, i'm not trying to offend anyone i don't think food can ever be purely art in the ultimate Whatever, cut that out. It's, it's, no, no, it's no. I no I, 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 get, <laughs> no, I it's, get. It's like what you're a saying. can of worms. No, I get. I get what you're saying because food will always no. be. It'll always be nutrition.
0: All. Yeah, exactly. All other art, you don't technically need in your life. I know there's people that say like, I mean, I, I can't imagine a world that I live in without music or film. But you, no matter what, but you, end up, you that, have we, to. Yeah. You have to eat. So I yeah, get what you're right. saying.
1: Yeah. Right. So, but at the same time, I think the. Um, I think that art, why should it aspire? Why should anything aspire to be art? A pursuit, you know, a cultural pursuit should be what it is: And eating, dining, hospitality, social interaction, um, imbibing in ritual. All of those things that dining does that nothing else can do. And there's also something when you eat; it's the only thing that actually engages every sense. Yeah. Right. You're tasting. You're smelling. You're looking. You're hearing. All of those things. You're feeling. Um, so I, you know, I think that's why food is ultimately one of the most compelling things. It's it's also the the decline of <laughs> the decline of Western civilization that we're this obsessed with what we're eating, right? Yeah, that's um, you know that's another one of my you know it's one of my chaos theories and probably why I gravitate towards food because it's if we're going to go out we might as well go out on a banquet rather than
0: you know MREs. <laughs> Alright, All right, right, well that maybe.
1: sounds like an apocalyptic end. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, last but not least, we'll do our little speed round sure. of gut instincts. You can can you, answer let this me sw- finish
1: my cappuccino to oh. get speedy.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of answered this already, but I'll ask you again. Favorite fast food? Uh, I have to pick just one? No, you can, uh, you can answer the questions as uh, as whatever way you'd like. Terrible. Don't want to give you that. Fucking narrow, Lusa, uh, defined, uh, okay.
1: Like, just save yourself the time. <laughs> <laughs> I have to pick Fast food, I mean, I kind of like the idea i I just love the represent I love what in and out does. I love the way in and out makes me feel what it represents uh, so I'm gonna have to go with in and out.
0: What does it make you feel?
1: It makes me feel like a Catholic feels when they go to the Vatican and eats oh wow, uh, yeah, okay. It's. I feel fully integrated into um, California life.
0: Go-to alcoholic beverage.
1: I would say red wine. Uh, specifically, I'm really into Pinot Noirs from sort of Washington State and Oregon and Northern California. Yeah. Um, yeah. Favorite childhood snack. I wasn't. Did we have sweet? You know. My mother is a lifelong vegetarian and a pretty long, long-suffering long vegan, although I don't think she sees it as that. Um, we didn't – we had – you know, growing up, I had pretty clean food. Pretty – I mean, clean. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, like, we didn't eat junk food. Like, sure. we didn't re- – like, I remember one time, like, we never had sweetened cereals. We. You know, we yeah. would have chocolate once in a while, but we – compared to what the English – especially in the 70s and the 80s what english kids were eating you know was was pretty bad yeah um so thinking back i guess
0: i don't know was there a snack you ever saw that you were envious someone else was having maybe my memory is just shot
1: <laughs> <laughs> but i like i really you know i'm kind of thinking like i honestly i'm i'm drawing a complete blank which okay. is why I'm pretty, you know, I don't eat junk food a lot. That's, that's I eat junky th- food, but I don't eat junk
0: food. Yeah, well, like you I mean, you're you're eating some, at some pretty great places and pretty amazing people cooking food for you, so that makes sense. Why waste it on Oreos and? I don't like snacks. How about yeah. that? There you go. I, there, I like <laughs> it. That's a great answer. Sweet or savory? Uh, I will go with savory. Favorite food city, foreign and domestic, Be- meaning, yeah. Well Obviously. I'm, I'm in the New York and, and yeah American. exactly so uh, yeah.
1: New York is my favorite food
0: city. Okay.
1: My favorite food city outside of New York is maybe uh that's a tough one. I love Tokyo. I love Osaka in Japan. But maybe I love Osaka for, because it's more like New York in terms of its chaos. I, I mean I go with Tokyo.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Tokyo is just it's just the most amazing place. Favorite cuisine? My favorite cuisine is um, it's a mid-century American chop house dining, I guess. Kind of what you get at the grill or the tack room. What you see elements of at places like Porterhouse, New York. And what, what kind of built it at places like the Monaco's and Pete Lugas and Keen's, right? So things within that realm. Um, obviously very meat centric um, but also the ele- you know a lot of elements of fine dining um and and very sort of anglicized so restaurant menus that were they english instead of french okay. so that that when i say that sort of mid century and i mean mid mid twentieth century yeah. right um you know that era kind of the about the time sort of right before beef started getting frozen and vacuum packed in and it was really dry aged probably, yeah. right? Yeah. So that that's the answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Guilty pleasure food.
1: I guess vanilla ice cream. It's a good one. Favorite condiment? You know, I don't... There's nothing that I put on universally.
0: Okay.
1: Right? Like, I don't put ketchup on everything. Sure. I don't put... Ma- you know, like... If it's a hot dog, I'm putting mustard on. If it's a hamburger, I'm probably putting nothing on it. Yeah. But if anything, it'll be mustard. Um, I don't put anything on my steaks. What's the last thing you ate? I mean, you're, you're drinking a. The cup last machine. thing I ate. Was, I mean, <laughs> the last meal I ate, or the yeah. last thing, because the last thing I ate was technically a was vanilla ice cream. Okay. But what? The last <laughs> meal that I ate was at Attack Room, Thomas Keller's new restaurant in Hudson Yards. It was. Ah, um, the new neighborhood. It was a Snake River Farms. Which is an American Wagyu, not a. People call it Wagyu, but it's actually a, it's it can't be Wagyu. Wagyu means Japanese beef. Okay. And in yeah. the same way that if you're born in the states, you can't be Japanese. If your animal is raised here, it can't be Japanese. Sure. And so it, it's the same breed. In many cases, it's actually a crossbreed between Angus and. But I think the Snake River Farms might be pure blood. Um. In any case, if they're not, I call it American um Angus uh, American Wagyu. Because it is reared differently and it does taste differently, but this this stuff is incredible. Um, it was it was also 160 bucks. But <laughs> Snake River Farms uh, New York strip steak. We also had a there was three of us. We also had a Snake River Farms prime rib. Oh, there you go. S- spectacular, also. But again, 110 bucks for a probably a 14 ounce portion with Yorkshire pudding. Which, if you know what Yorkshire pudding is, it's uh, it's what Americans consider a popover, except that in to me, what Yorkshire pudding is is cooked in beef fat, yeah. and this was spec. This was a sp- fantastic Yorkshire pudding. Uh, that Caesar salad, uh, crab cakes. I mean, an incredible meal. Yeah, it sounds Absolutely. like an amazing meal. Yeah, um, and getting back to the prior answer, like that's exactly that's my favorite type of dining. That prime rib is my favorite dish. Awesome. Um, so yeah, not not a, I showed up at the right day to do the podcast because it could have <laughs> been my fasting day and it would have been like uh, yeah exactly uh, yeah I had a, uh, yeah. uh, I had a uh, a handful of nuts and a sweet <laughs> smoothie.
0: What would be your last meal?
1: My last meal will probably be, um, and or my death row meal, is the Smith-Owlansky prime rib. Hash browns, cream spinach from that restaurant. That's what I call the trinity.
0: <laughs> Do you, I mean, this is... Uh, do you prefer to dine in or dine out? I, I mean, don't know what dining in means. What does dining in? Oh, I'm means? sorry. Cook for yourself. Cooking at home. I don't heard? know what does that mean. <laughs> no, I eat out every meal. Uh, every meal. Yeah. Okay, that's a that's a. I think that's a first. I mean, a lot of people prefer to dine out anyway, but it's a good one. What would be your spirit food? What is there? Is there a food that you're just like? Oh yeah, it's like I I get it. It's like me. Well, hopefully, nothing's like me.
1: I mean, it has to be beef and specifically yeah. dry aged beef, and more specifically, the Spinalis Dorsi, uh, which is the rip
0: cap. Is there a specific, you know, h- how many weeks into dry aging that you prefer? You know, no, it, it's like wine. Um, what I, re- you
1: know, what I want in dry aging when I go to different restaurants is I want different expressions of dry aging. So I love restaurants that dry age their own beef. Okay. Um, so places like Smith & Pete Peter Luger's, Keen's, they have their own dry age rooms. So wow. what comes out of that room is totally unique, you know. Yeah. Um, obviously that's not doable for most restaurants and of course the beef that like Pat LaFrieda and De Braga and Master Purveyors and King Solomon Foods and New York Foods and all these great, you know, New York Prime Beef, all of these great purveyors that we have here, right, they, they produce fantastic beef. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is, is those butchers working with the chefs to give something unique for each restaurant. So you look at Manetta and To me, that overall, I think that is, and given the fact that they've been going 10 years now. I mean, it's just, that's a spectacular beef program. You know, to me, if, if people ask, like, what's the best steak? I mean, there's. There's a hundred answers, but, like, that's when I can definitely tell people, go to Mineta and have the Cote de Boeuf. Like, I've, ne- I've never had people disappointed with it. It's fantastic. Um, what the hell was the question? I've even forgotten. What oh, no, that was about...
0: about uh... Sp- spirit food so it's got to be beef. Into, yeah. yeah you just cut that There's out some, the, yeah. the answer is dry no no I, 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 no <laughs> but I asked you what was your as far as weeks goes you know if you had a preference of uh, dry age so that was no that was something that was so dry-aged yeah dry-aged.
1: I mean I think that like, I love really profoundly intensely funky pieces that I've had like 500 day dry age 400 day dry age at the same time like the sweet spot for me is usually depending on the room but somewhere between 30 and 40 days I think that's a very good you don't know, look after 21, even after 21 days, I don't think you're gaining anything in tenderness. Okay. I think you end up losing something in texture once it starts really getting desiccated and it becomes much more like charcuterie and drying out. So I like, you know, I like the beef to have some juice and chew to it. Yeah. So I think somewhere around that, that period is great.
0: If, if you go, I don't know if you go to the movies, but if you do, do you have a favorite snack of the movies? You know, I do. Don't go to the movies often because I have a home theater system. Wow.
1: Um, with a very large projection screen, like a hundred inches, and a seven-point-one surround system. Um, it's not. It is not the same experience as going to the movies, obviously. Yeah. But it's pretty damn close. Yeah, that's well, it's, it's nice putting in the comfort close. of your own home. Yeah, I mean, if I can see some, if I can see actual film, film, I'll go see that. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't eat. In no snacks. I don't eat at airports. I don't eat snacks. I don't eat at movie theaters. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good that way, but then I'm sort of when I get around the dinner
0: table it's like apocalypse now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh last question What's the greatest lesson you've learned in food?
1: Um don't put ketchup on a hamburger.
0: <laughs> don't put ketchup on a hamburger. I don't know. No, but I it's, don't, I don't yeah. know.
1: I, there's there's too many answers. Of course. Um the greatest lef- lesson I've learned in food is to just fucking try it. Just eat the thing. Whatever it is, it's, it's not going to kill you. Yeah, well, yeah. actually, <laughs> let me rephrase that. If, it's, if a chef is serving it to you... <laughs> it's, it's,
0: yeah, don't go on a hike and just start yeah. eating berries off the...
1: Just try it. You never know how you're going to like something. Right? Like, one of my ethos is about eating animals is that you should eat everything on the animal. So, all right, not every meal can be, like, kidneys and, and, and uh, tripe. But I really think, like, if you're eating steaks, if you're eating hamburgers, like, you have a responsibility once in a while to eat something else from that animal. Sure, um, yeah. Because it, it does, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, look, I, there's nothing I like. I just mentioned to you I love the Spinalis dorsi. On a, uh, on a rib steak or a prime rib, right? That's, but that that way of eating, really breaking down the animal into primals and prioritizing ribs and short ribs yeah. over the rest of the animal, it it is debasing on some level. I think. I mean, it's inevitable, right? But you, I try to redress that by by eating the other things. And actually, look, I love. I'd rather eat sweetbreads than filet mignon, right? I'd rather eat tripe than a lot of than like I don't like flank steak I'd rather eat tripe than frank steak for instance Right? flank steak to me has a kind of cardboardy flavor filet mignon is unless it's super aged I really I don't really take to it Um, but at the same time I'll eat filet
0: (laughs) I'll suffer through it Nick, I can't thank you enough for the pleasure was all mine, thank you. This has been a great experience. Uh, if you could just I mean well, actually please share with uh, you've got the show coming out. Please you know, tell the listeners where they can uh, check out. So your I work. think the
1: easiest way is just to go to nicksolaris.com. That's N I C K S O L A R E S. you can follow me on Instagram at, at Nick Solaris or on Twitter at Nick underscore Solaris. Ah, uh, yeah. And I have a YouTube channel called Meat Life. Um, but everything connects to everything
0: else. Yeah, so, so if you go on your website world. at the bottom, there's all the connections. Yeah, you can get yeah. to everything. So so. to, yeah, yeah. And,
1: and so we have the first show coming out soon. It's on Smith & Walensky, uh, Prime Rib, the greatest thing I've ever eaten,
0: my death row meal. I, so, uh, I cannot wait to watch it and probably and then go there and uh, try it. Go and try it. Uh, and We have a little catchphrase that, uh, if, if you could please the guest with saying it, it's, there's more to cut. Something my grandmother always used to say.
1: There's more to cuts Thank you My pleasure, Treasure
0: Yummy, yummy, yummy I
1: got love in my tummy And I feel like I'm loving you
0: Love you such a sweet thing Good enough to eat thing And it's just a while